On today's episode, I'll be covering another DC superhero movie, Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice from 2016. everyone welcome to brandon at random reviews i am your host brandon griffiths thank you for stopping by i do appreciate it today on the show like i said i've got one movie to talk about and that is batman v superman but first i'd be remiss if i didn't mention kevin conroy he recently passed away he was the voice of batman throughout my childhood And honestly, no one has ever done it better than him. And he was just a gift for me. Honestly, he was a gift to the world. He did such an amazing job. He started in Batman the Animated Series and moved on to other installments such as Batman Beyond, where he had aged out of being Batman and had to mentor a younger guy to take over. And he was in the Justice League shows, Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And he was solid in those ones. He has a lot of great moments in that show and those two shows, I should say. And they're honestly just fucking fantastic. I really like them. He did the Batman Arkham video games, which were stupendous. They're some of the best video games for my money ever. And he just voices the character perfectly. And it's just, it's so great because it's just, he is the guy that I think of when I think, what does Batman sound like? What is that? What is the voice of Batman? And it's Kevin Conroy every single time. And it's just, it's such a tragic thing that he had to pass on. Uh, Evidently, he had colon cancer, I believe it was. And he didn't make it public before he passed away. And it's very, very sad. I, I My thoughts are with his family. I just know that he will live on through the numerous rewatchings of all of these Batman series and games and things like that. I just, I can't stress it enough. There are a lot of great moments that he had in Batman the Animated Series, especially There's a particular one that always stands out that's pretty brief, but it's an episode where the Scarecrow has been using his fear toxin on Batman, and Batman keeps having these visions of his father telling him that he's disappointed in him, and that he he hasn't lived up to what he should have lived up to, and things like that, and basically just the whole thing is just wearing on Bruce because he was already having this awful feeling like he, he, you know, somebody made a comment to him that he wasn't as good as his father or something like that. And it's like, he obviously just let that sink into his mind and, and he overthought it and didn't consider the fact that the person who said it to him wasn't necessarily the best source of information. But there's a moment where toward the end of the episode, he is going he's on he's hanging from a blimp and all of a sudden it's like he's trying to fight away these visions and all of a sudden it comes back and we get this moment where 
but I'll actually let you listen to it because I'm going to put the clip in this episode and I hope nobody gets pissy about the fact that I do. It's just, it's a very important clip to me. So I, it's all out of tribute to Kevin Conroy. So give a listen. To my fear toxin. Not now. You are a disgrace. No. No. You are not my father. I am not a disgrace. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman. That's it. I mean, that is the amazing kind of work he was doing on that show and in subsequent installments and different uh, iterations of the character. And it's just fucking amazing. I really love Kevin Conroy. And he's honestly, I can say, made my life better. And he is going to be sorely missed. And like I said, I wish his family all the best. All right, so I guess I can get on to Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, Released on March 25th, 2016, based on multiple DC Comics characters and stories, some major portions of the script are based on the comic book arcs The Dark Knight Returns and The Death of Superman. It's actually considered a sequel to Man of Steel, but most of the people who worked on it don't really consider it that. It's something more than that, and I think that if we got another... Superman movie that would really be the sequel to Man of Steel, but realistically, we don't know when the hell that's ever going to happen because there's so much of a shakeup at DC right now that you don't even really know what to expect next. The movie was directed by Zack Snyder. He also directed 300, which is a solid movie. It's a guy movie, and I will say right now, I like it a lot, but it's one of those movies that I have to make sure if I recommend it to somebody that they need to understand that it is wholly ridiculous. I mean, it's based on a graphic novel, I believe, and it's just over the top, and it's very visual. It's just basically like a beating-your-chest kind of movie where all of these Spartans have to fight all of these different armies, and there's just, like, the 300 of them, and it's, like, it's very compelling to watch, but it's, it's definitely different. So I just... Be aware of that if you go to watch it for the first time. He also did Watchmen, which is a movie that I really didn't think was anything special the first time I watched it. It's based on a graphic novel, so after I saw the movie, a few years later, I broke down and bought the graphic novel and read that, and basically, it was fucking solid. I mean, it was a really good graphic novel. It's by Alan Moore. I really liked the story. Then when I finished reading it, I turned around and watched the movie again, and I was amazed what Zack Snyder had really accomplished with that movie. He had really faithfully adapted it to screen, and it was very well done. I can't say that I have any real complaints about it. It's just, it's a very solid movie, honestly. The theatrical cut of Watchmen is 162 minutes long, And the ultimate cut, which is 215 minutes long, is one that I still need to check out, but it's going to be a while. I just don't know that I am dying to sit through like four hours of Watchmen right now, but it'll happen eventually. 
He also did Man of Steel, previously covered on this podcast, and that one was solid. I talked about it in a prior episode, so I won't bore you with all of that. He also did Zack Snyder's Justice League, which is a future episode, and I won't go into too much detail on that because you're going to learn all about it in due time. For the writers, we have Chris Terrio and David S. Goyer. Terrio worked on the movie Argo, which won a bunch of Academy Awards and was a pretty solid movie. I didn't think it was that great, but then again, that's kind of why I struggle with all of these Academy Award-winning movies, is it's like I never feel like they're as good as the Academy acts like they are. He also worked on Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, which is the final installment in the sequel trilogy for Star Wars, and that one was just okay. It was Better than The Last Jedi, which I am one of those people that I legitimately hate The Last Jedi, but it was just okay. I mean, there were some things that annoyed me in it. Like, they basically have you think that a character died and, like, really died, and then they pull the rug out from under you and bring that character back, and it's like, yeah, no, I didn't want to see that character die, but I also wanted you to take that chance and... Take some risks storytelling. That's all I ask is just be a little more bold with it and don't act like you have to undo what you've done to make everyone happy because ultimately you're not going to make everyone happy no matter what you do. So Goyer was actually quoted as saying that Batman v Superman is a film that you make when you've exhausted all other possibilities. He actually said that in advance of signing on to write this movie. He worked on the Blade trilogy. I loved the first two Blade movies like a lot of people did. They're solid. The third one, it was just not anything special. I mean, I mean, let's be honest. It, it's fucking terrible. It's a terrible fucking god-awful movie, and it's just nobody should watch it. It's so fucking stupid, and it just annoys the shit out of me. And he also worked on the Dark Knight trilogy, and I believe he got screenwriter credit for Batman Begins, but for the other two movies, he just got story by credit, so I don't know how involved he was in those movies. He also did Terminator Dark Fate, which I really like. I think it's a solid movie. A lot of people have their mixed feelings about it, but I thought it was a very watchable movie, and I thought it really had a good story, and it brought a lot of these characters that we're familiar with back, and made it more interesting, and honestly, the last few sequels we had gotten in the Terminator franchise since Terminator 2 were just not good. I mean, they just didn't really do much for me, so that's kind of why. It's like you get Terminator 3, The Rise of the Machines, which was not good, and then I think it was Terminator Salvation that had Christian Bale, and that's the one where he famously freaked out on the set of the movie, because somebody was walking across his eye line or something. And then Terminator Genesis, which was just not good, really, at all. It, it left a lot to be desired. So for the producers, we have Charles Roven and Deborah Snyder. Roven worked on the Dark Knight trilogy as well, previously covered on this podcast, if I didn't mention that. He worked on Suicide Squad, and that one will be covered on this podcast as well, so I won't bore you with all of that. And then Man of Steel, which again, we've already covered and I'm probably not going to talk a whole lot about it because it's already been talked about. And then with Snyder, she's actually married to Zack Snyder, the director of this movie. 
And she worked with him on Watchmen and 300 and things like that. They collaborate together a lot, obviously. For the score, we have composers Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL. Zimmer did the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which some of them were okay, but most of them I'm not a big fan of. I don't think they're anything special. And then he did a lot of Christopher Nolan movies, more later ones. He didn't do a lot of his earlier ones like Memento or Insomnia or whatever it's called. I don't remember which movie it started off with, though. Composer Hans Zimmer said that this would be the last superhero movie for which he would compose music. And then he just went on to compose music for X-Men Dark Phoenix and Wonder Woman 1984, which are two movies that are objectively worse than Batman v Superman. I don't care what you say, they are objectively worse. Then Junkie XL worked on Mad Max Fury Road, which is a fucking amazing movie. It's really well done, very visual. Definitely still want to cover it on this podcast at some point, but I'm just not sure with it being so visual how much justice I can do it. And he also worked on Alita Battle Angel, which is a Robert Rodriguez movie, and it was a really cool movie. It's a very interesting concept. It's definitely a good, enjoyable movie. I would just leave it at that. It's it's solid. Definitely check it out if you get a chance. For the cast, we have Ben Affleck, who plays Batman slash Bruce Wayne. He was in Argo, and he also directed that movie. Like I said, that was just, it was a good movie. It was not great to me, but it was all right. He did Gone Girl, which was previously covered on this podcast, and I really enjoy that one. I find it very watchable. It's a very interesting story. It's got a lot of really great performances in it and things like that. He was in Armageddon with Bruce Willis and Liv Tyler, and it's about an asteroid that's coming to hit the Earth and basically bring about the end of days for Earth. And so they've got to, like, get on a spaceship and they've got to drill to get to the center of this asteroid and basically break it apart so that it misses the Earth, and that's their big plan. Yeah, it's not super great. It's a Michael Bay movie. It's just okay. Pearl Harbor is another one he did, and I don't really remember this movie so much, but I remember it not being good. That's one thing that stands out to me. Then we have Henry Cavill, who plays Superman slash Clark Kent, and he was in The Count of Monte Cristo, and that one has Guy Pearce and Jim Caviezel. Cavill was actually very young in this movie. I don't... I think he was basically Jim Caviezel's son, but they didn't act like he was, like, basically, they had led the son to believe that he was the son of Guy Pierce, and it's a fucking wild movie. It's a period piece, but I would check it out. It's pretty solid. He was in The Man from Uncle, which is a criminally underrated spy thriller from Guy Ritchie. It's a very enjoyable movie. He's in it with Army Hammer, and I really like it a lot. It's a solid fucking movie. He was also in Mission Impossible Fallout, which is solid. It's not as good as I thought it was going to be based on the previews, but it was pretty fucking good, honestly. Then we have Amy Adams, who I have noted here is hot, and she plays Lois Lane, and she was in American Hustle, and I liked that movie when I first saw it in theaters, but honestly, when I watched it again, it was just dull. It was boring to me. I couldn't get into it, and it just really disappointed me because there are a lot of great people in the cast, like Christian Bale and Bradley Cooper 
and Jennifer Lawrence. I mean, that's a solid fucking cast. And to deliver on a movie that just really makes you feel like, meh, it's just, it's too bad. She was also in Her, which is that semi-futuristic movie about a guy who finds a girlfriend in an operating system. And so it's this high-tech thing where she kind of is in his computer, but she doesn't have a physical form, really. And he's, like, dating her. And, I mean, it's just a very interesting concept for a movie. She was also in Nocturnal Animals. And I barely remember this movie. I remember it just being very dark. And I think it had Jake Gyllenhaal in it and maybe a couple other people. But it was a good movie. It was just, it was very dark. And I... uh, Clearly can't remember much of any of the plot, so that's that. And then for the last one on her list, she was in The Fighter, and that had Christian Bale and Mark Wahlberg in it. And I don't remember that one much at all. I really need to go back and rewatch it. I remember it being solid, though. Then we have Jesse Eisenberg, who plays Lex Luthor, and he was in Adventureland. Adventureland was okay. It's got the problem that a lot of these indie-type movies do, where it's kind of like skimping on plot and they're just happy that they could get the stars to sign on to it. And basically, it doesn't really do much for you to watch it. It's kind of like a throwaway movie for me. I wouldn't want to ever like own it or anything like that. He was also in Zombieland and that movie was pretty fucking solid. It's like a horror comedy and basically there's all these zombies around and Jesse Eisenberg's character has all of these rules about how to handle the zombies and not get killed. And so he just kind of follows them throughout the movie and he meets a couple of other people. And it's it's a pretty solid movie. He was in The Social Network, which is a David Fincher movie. And I really like The Social Network because it's David Fincher and I love David Fincher. It's about Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook. Basically, it just tells his story about how he came to be and how people claimed that he stole their idea and things like that. And it's just a very compelling story to me. Then we have Diane Lane, who I have noted here is hot, and she plays Martha Kent. And she was in Judge Dredd very early in her career with Sylvester Stallone, and that movie was straight fucking trash. The new one that's just called Dread is actually really solid. It's got Carl Urban in it. I really like it, but that Sylvester Stallone one can fucking kick rocks. I don't give a shit. I don't like it at all. She was also in Under the Tuscan Sun, which is, I mean, it was a good enough movie. It's basically like a good chick flick, but it didn't really do a whole lot for me. I wasn't super impressed with it. She was in Hollywoodland with Ben Affleck, actually, and... Ben Affleck plays George Reeves, the guy who played Superman on Adventures of Superman in the 1950s, and his death is shrouded in controversy, and people really don't know for sure what happened to him. I don't really remember that movie being particularly good. I remember it being like, oh, this could be interesting, let's watch this, and then I watched it, and it was just kind of like, it fell flat for me. It didn't really do what I hoped it would do. She was also in The Perfect Storm, which I have still not seen this fucking movie, and I have never heard anybody give a glowing review of it. So basically, it's like, if I ask if I should watch a movie, it's like, I don't want to hear you say, 
yeah, it's not bad. That's not good for me. I'm not going to give that movie a chance if that's all you can say about it, because it's just, it doesn't seem like it would be that good, and I'm not really that compelled to watch it anyway. So it's like, it would really take something special for me to actually watch The Perfect Storm. Then we have Gal Gadot, who I also have noted here is hot, and she plays Wonder Woman slash Diana Prince, and she was in the Fast and the Furious movies, just a few of them, as a character named, I believe, Giselle, and she, I think they killed her off, I can't remember what they did with her character, but basically she was only in them for a few and people have been, like, clamoring to bring her back, and it's just kind of, like, one of those things where it's like, yeah, they might fucking do it, because the Fast and the Furious movies have no rules, and they just do whatever the fuck they want. For casting notes, we have Henry Cavill, Amy Adams, Kevin Costner, Diane Lane, and Lawrence Fishburne all reprised their roles from Man of Steel from 2013. Among those who auditioned for or were considered for the role of Batman were Ryan Gosling, Josh Brolin, Joe Manganiello, Armie Hammer, Jason Momoa, Gerard Butler, John Hamm, Orlando Bloom, Luke Evans, Richard Armitage, Max Martini, and Matthew Good. I don't really love any of these choices. I actually had to look some of those names up because I didn't recognize their name, and I just didn't really think any of these guys would be good choices for Batman, but... I do actually, with the exception of Josh Brolin, I would really have loved to have seen him get the part in this movie. I think it would have been incredible. He would have been a perfect aged Batman. I would have fucking loved that. Jeffrey Dean Morgan was originally considered to play Batman, but was instead cast as Thomas Wayne. Before Jesse Eisenberg was cast as Lex Luthor, Tom Hanks, Matt Damon, Bradley Cooper, Joaquin Phoenix, Adam Driver, and Jean Duardine were on the list by Warner Brothers to play the part. Timothy Dalton was considered for the role of Alfred Pennyworth. Olga Kirilenko and Elodie Young auditioned for the role of Wonder Woman, which ultimately went to Gal Gadot. Jamie Alexander was reportedly up for the role, but contractual obligations to Marvel Studios prevented her from taking the role. She actually plays Lady Sif and Thor, and I'm assuming Marvel just has a thing in their contracts that say that you can't sign on for another DC superhero movie that's not Marvel. Bradley Cooper, Chris Pine, Ryan Quantin, Matthew Fox, and Scott Porter were all linked for the role of Barry Allen, a.k.a. The Flash, in a previous iteration of the character. I don't really know what that previous iteration would have been, and I guess maybe they, like, took it in a different direction after they originally wrote it or something. Michael B. Jordan was considered for the role of Cyborg. I ended up really liking Ray Fisher in that part, despite the theatrical cut eliminating much of his role from Justice League. Adam Driver was almost cast as Robin slash Nightwing during early iterations of the story. Carla Gugino was planned to play Catwoman before the role was cut from the script. For a plot synopsis, fearing that the actions of Superman are left unchecked, Batman takes on the Man of Steel, while the world wrestles with what kind of hero it really needs. The tagline for this movie is just, who will win? It's not bad. It's not a terrible tagline, but it's not great either. Alright guys, let's just dive right into the plot of this fucking movie. So I want to start by saying that I actually do love the style in which Zack Snyder shoots these movies. They're very dark and sleek and generally pretty fucking crisp looking. 
So we start off with voiceover from Bruce Wayne, played by Ben Affleck. And while he's talking, we're just watching footage of what appears to be funeral proceedings, and little Bruce is running away from them. I do feel like what Ben Affleck is saying here feels kind of meaningless and unnecessary. It's just super ominous, but maybe that's just me. Like, by the end of the movie, I forgot all of what he said in this sequence. I looked it up, and this is the actual nonsense that he says. There was a time above, a time before. There were perfect things, diamond absolutes. But things fall, things on earth. And what falls is fallen. In the dream, it took me to the light. A beautiful lie. That's what he says. Truthfully, I guess I'd call that poetry. It's bad poetry, where Bruce is essentially talking about how perfect his life felt before his parents died and how things don't last forever, but man, I really don't like that writing style at all. I don't think it's very well done. And of course, I just thank my lucky stars every time a new Batman movie lets me sit through another retelling of the death of Thomas and Martha Wayne. How can you not love seeing a necklace being broken in a struggle and watching the whole strand of individual pearls fall to the ground in slow motion? It's fucking perfect. It's like, oh, is this Bruce Wayne? Is this a Batman story? Are his parents going to be dead in this one or no? Oh, okay. Well, we'll just need to show exactly how that death went down so the audience knows. I don't want it to sound like they did a bad job in this movie of showing their death. It's actually really well done, but we know the Waynes died. We have firmly established how it happened, and there's not much left to be done in the way of putting a new spin on that event at all. The one from Batman 1989 is just okay, but only the bad guys talk in that one, it seems like. And the one from Batman Begins might be the best, and the one from Joker is legitimately just tacked on and unnecessary feeling. And as soon as that movie was over, I had to make a comment to the friend that I saw it with, just about how it's like, Jesus Christ, did we really fucking need that again? Did this movie really have to have that? So a little trivia on that, the Waynes are seen walking out of a movie theater. A poster of The Mark of Zorro from 1940 is seen on the theater wall. Though not exclusive to all origin stories, most canon Batman origin stories since 1986 have the Waynes leaving a screening of the film. This trend was originally set in reference to the fact that Batman was largely based on the character of Zorro. The sequence showing the murder of the Waynes is interspersed with footage of Bruce running from the funeral and falling into a hole in the ground that ends up leading to a cave. And I have to point out that this guy is hashtag not my Joe Chill. The dude they show shooting Thomas and Martha Wayne doesn't look like he should in my opinion at all. He's way too fucking clean cut. This guy looks like a no-name male lead in some generic fucking Hallmark Christmas movie. Thomas lays on the ground dying and he just says, Martha, aloud. And there's just no way that'll come back in a significant way later on. Don't even worry about it, guys. Don't even think about that again. Young Bruce is in the cave he fell into and he gets attacked by a ton of bats and then, for reasons I really don't understand, these bats swarm around and seemingly lift Bruce up, and he basically looks like he's levitating back up to the hole that he fell through. For the first of many times in this movie, it's super fucking unclear what's a dream and what's not, and it can be so frustrating to watch, because it's cool to look at, and there's a lot of nice imagery, but it's also complete and utter nonsense a lot of the time, and 
it's strictly included because it's a cool visual, apparently, and I just really don't care for that. Now we've got fully grown Bruce, and he's racing to save people as the events of Man of Steel's climax are happening with the fight between Superman and the three Kryptonians led by General Zod. He's racing down the streets of Metropolis. Bruce is calling one of the major executives at Wayne Enterprises, and he's telling him to evacuate everyone. But, like, are you really waiting on Bruce to tell you this? Do you need the green light to respond to the imminent danger you can see out the window of this building? What the fuck is wrong with you, executive? Like, oh no, I realize there's real danger bearing down on us, but I can't give the green light on a basic safety procedure until Mr. Wayne says it's okay. Again, very spectacular visuals on display here, I'll not deny that. You can see Superman and Zod fighting around the buildings in the distance. Bruce is racing in his SUV as the buildings are all falling apart around him. People are legitimately just standing in the street, just like a bunch of fucking dopes, and they really should be fleeing in this moment. Like, yeah, let's just stand and watch and wait for this chaos to fucking destroy us. Of course, we get that same executive Bruce talked to on the phone asking that God have mercy on his soul as the building is destroyed. And first off, that whole thing is a bit much. Just the may God have mercy on my soul thing, it's too much. But also, why the fuck is he still hanging out there? He appears to be on the same floor that he was when he called Bruce the first time, and Bruce told him to evacuate, and he's not even trying to get out at all. I don't fucking understand it. So Bruce saves an employee whose legs were crushed by an I-beam, And I don't really buy that he loses his legs, but apparently he does lose his legs to that, and that's just a bit much too. That just seems like a lot of rehab and physical therapy to me, like he'd be walking again in due time, maybe a year or so I think he'd get there. Bruce finds a little girl and says they're gonna find her mom, and basically she suggests that her mom is fucking dead because of Superman, naturally. Like, they're just laying it on fucking thick how much they're fucking blaming Superman for everything in this movie. They really went all in on responding to complaints about how needlessly reckless Superman was in Man of Steel and how he didn't care about civilian casualties and stuff. After the opening with Bruce doing his makeshift search and rescue, We go across the world to see some dudes find kryptonite for like three seconds and that's it. It's very brief. Like you can barely even process it and it's already gone from the screen. And then we see Lois in the desert, presumably for a story. Amy Adams is a fucking stone cold fox and her confidence level is through the roof and I absolutely love her. So a terrorist that Lois is interviewing says he didn't realize he'd be talking with a lady and she actually says the words... I'm not a lady, I'm a journalist. Like, okay, you can actually be both, boo. Being a lady and being a journalist are not mutually exclusive things. So these terrorists find a tracker in Lois and Jimmy's stuff, and they think that they work for the CIA. To be honest, I don't even remember if they actually said who it was in the theatrical cut, but it's supposed to be Jimmy Olsen that she's there with. So Lois claims that she didn't know about the tracker and their stuff, And suddenly this bad guy in sunglasses that I don't know the name of starts killing people outside and this gang of dudes ride away on their dirt bikes into the desert. I've seen this movie a handful of times and I still can't remember what the guy with the sunglasses relevance is to the story. I mean, he's just basically Lex Luthor's main henchman, but he doesn't have many lines at all and we never see him and Lex together or interacting that I recall. 
So Superman comes and the main terrorist holds Lois up with a gun and she lets go of the guy's arm and Superman just smashes him through a few walls. And if you weren't sure, I'd say, yeah, that definitely killed the guy. That didn't really have to happen. Why are you like this, Superman? That could have easily been a non-lethal takedown and it wouldn't have been making you look like a piece of shit. A woman testifies about Superman at a hearing with all of these senators and we get our first taste of Holly Hunter as Senator Finch. And I gotta say, I'm not a fan of her in this movie. I don't like her character, and I don't really care for her as an actress. I think the only other thing I remember her from is this movie called Home for the Holidays. And I just remember the plot of that movie being non-existent and it just being very boring, honestly. Senator Finch questions what standard they're holding Superman to, and what he should be doing and what he should not be doing and ultimately how they're kind of helpless to police him. Lois is home now, and she pries a bullet out of a notebook from the desert, and this whole bullet plotline that they go with here is fucking useless to me. Also, could they give Clark Kent or Superman less of a personality in these movies? It just doesn't seem like he has anything going on with that. I mean, just something. So maybe it's a little bit on Cavill's acting range, but I don't see where the script is giving him a lot to work with. So Lois tries to tell Clark about the hearings, but he doesn't want to be bogged down with public opinion or responsibility or the ramifications of his thoughtless actions and stuff like that. What's important is that Lois is totally fucking naked in this tub, and I am truly astounded that we don't see a nip slip in this moment. To be fair, they say the key is to just keep the water moving in these scenes, which is some truly amazing Hollywood behind-the-scenes insight I just laid on you. That's straight from the special features that came with the Caddyshack DVD, thank you very much. I just don't buy Lois and Clark as a couple in this movie. Like, when are they going to go shopping together? That's the most couple thing you can do. Plus, I feel like this is the only time we see Lois and a non-Superman Clark together. The police investigate a disturbance at this house, and there are a bunch of terrified children in there that are in a jail cell of some sort that don't want to be let out of it. It's very dark in the place, and the cops go upstairs to investigate pounding and screaming noises, and there are some dudes up there, and one guy is actually chained to a radiator, and suddenly you see Batman, and he is somehow up on the wall, almost like he's stuck to it, and I don't know why... That was the thing. It seemed like it was wholly unnecessary and honestly not cool like they seemed to think it was. After Batman gets away, the cops see that Batman branded the guy on the radiator with a bat symbol. Alfred is played by Jeremy Irons, who was a solid pick for this role. Bruce is investigating the man with the sunglasses from the desert. And the guy looks like Bono, but I've never been forced to own any of his music, so not quite as bad as Bono. Evidently, Batman only brands particularly bad criminals. In the extended cut, there's this whole bit about prisoners attacking those who are branded, but as with many other extended edition scenes, it doesn't really go anywhere and it's kind of pointless to leave in the movie. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's funny how much of this movie I'm noticing is missing stuff that was included in the extended cut because I'm watching the theatrical cut for it. And I'm just like, where is that thing? Where's this moment? Oh, right, that was the extended cut, okay. But pretty much all of those scenes are either useless or annoying, and it doesn't really matter that they're not here. So we're about to meet Lex Luthor, as played by Jesse Eisenberg, and I've got to say, I can never 
mentally prepare myself enough for his performance. But he's got this super hot assistant that I'm a big fan of. She, I'm a real big fan of her. So these senators are visiting Lex, and I gotta ask, is this a thing? Do senators travel in groups to meet with evil rich people and address their concerns directly? Lex tells a story about his dad, and then he shows them a sample of some kryptonite, and he wants them to allow him to import the kryptonite to use as a deterrent against Superman, you know, for protection just in case he goes crazy and kills everybody. Nothing evil going on, I know what you're thinking. Purely a defensive strategy would never be actively used on a friendly Superman in a fit of nerd rage. Lex suggests that more bad beings like General Zod could be out there and you can't be too safe. So some of the senators are not huge fans of Lex's idea, it seems. It's almost like they realize there's potential to use kryptonite to get Superman out of the way to do evil stuff. So this guy, Wally, who is the one who got his legs crushed at the beginning of the movie, is putting up a bunch of newspaper clippings of Superman at his house. Little tidbit. Many of the news cuttings on Wallace's wall are events which were featured in the Christopher Reeve Superman films. Then he goes and climbs a Superman statue in the park and writes false god on it in red paint. At the Daily Planet, Perry White tells Clark that he's covering sports today because I guess the regular sports writer must be out sick or something. Everyone at the Daily Planet sees the story about Wally spray painting the statue and thus begins a narrative of the public turning against Superman. So we see this fucking scene where Lex is talking one-on-one with the senator. The senator grants him full access to the Kryptonian ship wreckage and General Zod's body and stuff, which seems like a responsible choice since there are probably only altruistic motives at play here. In the extended edition, for some unknown reason... It features Lex literally force-feeding the senator a Jolly Rancher, and this may shock you, but it's actually a little uncomfortable to watch. So I must mention that this movie is amazingly shot. Every visual is very picturesque and aesthetically pleasing, and I really enjoy that. Bruce is at a Fight Club thing, but he's not talking about it, and Sunglasses Guy is there. And while Sunglasses Guy is getting a drink, Bruce comes up and smoothly clones the guy's phone using his own phone. Seems like the kind of thing that would take more than like 15 seconds, but no, that's cool. I'm alright with that. It's one of those things that if you don't dissect it, it doesn't seem to be too bad. But to be fair, I could download the audio file for this episode of the podcast on Wi-Fi, and it'd probably be like 150 to 200 megabytes It would take me way longer, and that's just one file. But yeah, no, Batman would totally have wicked fast transfer speeds, no doubt. So Lois finds out the bullet from the desert is specially made, and Perry lets her do some more investigating on it. But what's important about this bullet story is absolutely nothing. This really doesn't matter much at all to the story as a whole. Which begs the question, why is it here? Unfortunately, just cutting the story entirely would reduce Amy Adams' screen time by a lot, and no one wants that. But if I remember right, this whole bullet story just links back to Lex Luthor, and it's very unsurprising and unsatisfying. Lex meets with Senator Finch, and she's blocking his import license for the kryptonite, and my god, I do fucking hate Jesse Eisenberg as Lex. He's just not at all the way Lex should be. He's way too fucking quirky and eccentric. Lex Luthor is the polar opposite of this in almost every way. 
Gene Hackman was a little too lighthearted, to be fair, but he wasn't as actively unpleasant, and he was far more likable. If I were Finch, I'd want to get out of this room before I got sexually assaulted, because that's definitely where this feels like it's headed, but it also seems like Lex is pretty much asexual. So Lex asks if he can call her June, and Finch says the quote, You can call me whatever you like. Take a bucket of piss and call it Granny's Peach Tea, as an analogy. And I only mention that throwaway line because it comes back later in the stupidest way imaginable. That's a perfect example. You cut that line, you cut the reference to it later on, and everything still makes sense, and it's doing nothing for the story at all. It's not funny, it's not clever, it's just stupid. So boy, I've got to say, the score in this movie is very hit and miss. I'm a fan at times, and then I'm really not a fan at other times. The surreal elements of the story, like Bruce going to the Wayne tomb and blood or whatever is dripping in the cracks, most of them are played off as dream sequences, but I say cut them or make them real and take out the surrealistic elements of it. I could go through this movie and cut a lot, and the core story would still work fine. I mean, it'd still end up like a pretty mediocre movie because I can only do so much without rewrites and reshoots and recasting, but that goes without saying. So Lois comes to this military guy asking about her bullet, and he doesn't bite on her conspiracy theory. Bruce is trying to figure out who or what something called the White Portuguese is. This, this whole White Portuguese thing is fucking pointless. It doesn't even have to be a thing, and it doesn't really stick with you after you watch this movie. It's not the thing that you remember. So Bruce stares angrily at the bat suit, which is on display, and then we see him look at this Robin suit that he also has on display, and it's got shitty Joker writing on it. More on that, Batman has a Robin costume that reads, The joke's on you, Batman. This is a reference to Jason Todd, who served as the second Robin, Batman's sidekick, and who was tortured and beaten to death by the Joker in the story arc A Death in the Family from 1988. This story arc was unique in that fans were actually given a hotline number to call in in advance of the story and were able to vote to decide whether or not Jason Todd's Robin would live. More on that, in some storylines, Jason Todd returns as the murderous vigilante The Red Hood, and in others, he never actually died, but instead suffered endlessly at the hands of the Joker in an attempt to turn him into an heir to the Clown Prince of Crime. My question is, why have that old Robin suit with all the writing on it on display? Like, I get not wanting to forget for sure, but do you really need to be reminded more? I'd assume that you wouldn't need any help with that at all. So Bruce shows up at this party that Lex is having, and Clark is there, and Clark asks somebody who Bruce is, and I'm really struggling to believe that a reporter wouldn't know who Bruce Wayne is given his fortune, company, and the whole thing with his parents being murdered by a gunman when he was eight, among other things. So realistically, he'd have to be one of the more famous people around, and for a reporter to not know him is insane to me. So Alfred is speaking to Bruce in an earpiece, and Clark can obviously hear their conversation, so he's listening in without them knowing. Bruce goes in to break into some kind of computer system downstairs with a device that he has, and he's interrupted by Lex's attractive assistant, and he has to go back upstairs. So Affleck really plays Bruce the way he should be played, to be honest. He just acts more like a clueless rich guy who fell into his money and didn't have to earn it. 
So Lex gives a speech that is, and this is going to shock you, it's weird and unsettling and I don't care for it. So Clark asks Bruce a few questions, like how he feels about the Bat Vigilante in Gotham. And my question is, do Clark's readers really give a shit about what Bruce thinks about Batman? Is that a thing? Clark reveals that he thinks the Batman believes he's above the law to Bruce, and Bruce fires back about how kindly the Daily Planet treats Superman, despite being an alien and how inherently dangerous he is. They both make strong points, but I'm going to side with Batman on this one simply because I like Batman more. So Lex walks up and ruins everything, as you might expect. Luckily, Bruce isn't dumb, and he doesn't really want to team up with Lex when Lex makes that offer. So there are so many things I just know this movie wants me to pay attention to that I know I'm not going to because they're not going to matter. Like some story that Clark sees on the news, and I'm supposed to watch it despite it not meaning anything in the grand scheme of things. I'm sure it's somewhat relevant to something in the plot, but I don't care, and if it's not there, it's no big deal. Bruce goes to the computer system downstairs again, and he sees this vibrantly beautiful woman, who I'll just tell you right now is named Diana Prince, because this movie never refers to her by her full name, and she's played by Gal Gadot. Anyway, Diana seemingly took Bruce's device he was using to hack into the system, so he goes right after her, but she gets away pretty quick and he doesn't have any idea who she is, so he really can't go after her anymore by car because he used valet, so he's kind of fucked there. Cut to Superman saving a child from a burning building and all of these people surround him and praise him, and the Christ allegory is strong with this one. They show a news talk show that has a bunch of people on talking about the pros and cons of Superman. It's pretty neat the way they do this. We're seeing shots of Superman saving people while the show's audio is playing, and it's a really well-executed sequence. Neil deGrasse Tyson is on the show, and I love that guy, but he can be very annoying, and I recognize that. So Wally, the legless guy, gets bailed out of jail by Lex, and Lex gives him a fancy new wheelchair... So, the idea is that Wally will testify at another hearing about Superman, and I don't know what the object of these hearings really is. What if Superman's just not going to go along with what they want to do? What are they going to do about that? So, this was something I definitely saw coming with Wally's Lex-funded wheelchair. I just knew that it had to be a bomb or something. There was no way it wasn't. Okay, so, I, I also can't remember for sure, but in the extended cut... There's this whole scene where it's revealed that Wayne Enterprises has been sending Wally checks, presumably as some sort of disability benefit, but they finally reveal to Bruce that the checks were getting returned in protest or whatever, and nobody tells Bruce that they were getting sent back because reasons, and he just finds out and he's like, what do you... Why didn't anybody tell me about this? And it's like, I have no fucking idea, Bruce. That's fucking ridiculous. So I've got to say, I like these debates about Superman and the whole concept of right or wrong. Unfortunately, it kind of gets overdone and it's never really truly resolved in this story. So Perry is giving Clark shit about writing his story on Batman instead of what Perry told him to write. And I agree with Clark that Batman has a more interesting story but at the same time, I'd write the stories that Perry wanted by day, and then in my off time, I'd develop a piece on the Batman so as to not piss off my boss, but I'd still write about what I wanted. Diana Prince, who Bruce saw earlier, is looking at an ancient sword in a museum, 
and Bruce walks up and talks to her a bit. She tries to walk away, but he wants to know about the device that she stole. This scene is pretty fucking great. Bruce plays it pretty cool with Diana. She tells him she merely borrowed his device and that it's in his car now because she's smooth as fuck and she managed to break into his car and put it away without being seen or heard. Later, Bruce is looking stuff up on the computer and we get this dream sequence that is honestly pretty fucking badass. I just kind of wish it didn't have to all be fake for no reason because this to a large extent could have been a real sequence minus a few elements here or there. So the way this sequence goes is Batman is suited up but he's wearing this coat and he's got goggles on his head and a bunch of tactical gear. He was clearly looking to acquire some kryptonite but it was a setup and a bunch of men converge on him. I'm not saying Batman could never be surprised by anyone but I'm saying this sounds like he got suckered into this fake deal and it seems like bullshit. But we get a really well choreographed fight scene where Batman straight up murders a lot of Superman soldiers that are all in tactical black military uniforms. Batman is then somehow captured and chained with his arms above his head and Superman shows up and takes off Batman's mask after using his heat vision to kill some innocent people because he's got to stay on brand. Just as Superman goes to pull Batman's heart out of his chest, Bruce wakes up and even though you knew it was a dream, no, especially because it was so obvious that it was a dream, seeing Bruce wake up just feels like an enormous slap in the face. Suddenly the Flash shows up in a portal trying to tell Bruce something about Lois and how Bruce is right about Superman and how he needs to find them, them presumably being the members of the Justice League. But if you're not a part of the comic book crowd, that shit is confusing as all get out. And then the Flash disappears when his portal closes, and I feel like even knowing what all that basically meant now, it still was very confusing the first time around. A little trivia on that, the Flash appearing from the future to deliver an ominous message to Bruce Wayne is a nod to Marv Wolfman's Crisis on Infinite Earths, which featured the Flash doing the exact same thing, including disappearing before he could make it clear what exactly he was warning Batman about. Bruce finds out the white Portuguese he was looking into is actually a ship that's transporting the kryptonite for Lex Luthor, but it's like, why make this whole thing out of the white Portuguese? It could have just been behind the scenes, or I should say unseen stuff, and Bruce is just tracking the shipment and knows when it comes in. We don't need to know the name of the ship. I can't stress this enough. No one cares about the white Portuguese, especially by the time you find out what it is, and you definitely don't remember it as a significant plot point afterward, if you even remember it at all. Bruce intends to steal the kryptonite that Lex is shipping in, not to keep out of Lex's dangerous hands, no, 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 just so Bruce can have it to use against Superman himself, because Batman's character is essentially a Superman villain for a vast majority of this film, in case you were a little confused by that. Alfred doesn't like the idea of Batman getting or using the kryptonite even a little bit, and they get into a heated discussion about Superman. Bruce insists that if there's even a 1% chance that Superman can be dangerous, they have to take it as an absolute certainty. But it's like, no, you really fucking don't. You can of course be mad at Superman for being reckless, but that doesn't mean just because there's a chance that he's bad, that it means that he's to be treated like he's 100% evil for sure. Batman probably has a lot more of a negative public image in this movie overall than Superman, 
and this all-or-nothing philosophy could easily be applied to him as well. Alfred tries to get Bruce to see it his way, but Bruce won't budge and still believes that Superman is bad. So Lois meets with the military guy again and gives him the special bullet and pleads with him to look into it for her. And now we see Batman is going after the men who are transporting the kryptonite on land. We get the first glimpse of the Batmobile, and I gotta say, I wish this movie wouldn't have copied the Tumblr look so hard from the Dark Knight trilogy. I wish we could have gotten a less militaristic tactical look. I really want to see more of a car. We get this intense fucking chase scene, and you gotta love seeing what the Batmobile is capable of at the very least. Batman is definitely shooting real live rounds from his Batmobile guns. In The Dark Knight Returns, which this movie is partially based on, I seem to remember Batman using rubber bullets, but not this one. My god, this chase does kick ass, though. It's pretty reminiscent of the chase from The Dark Knight, but with a much faster pace, in my opinion, but the stakes are a lot lower here. Then, all of a sudden, Superman is just standing there when Batman rounds a corner. Superman causes him to crash into a building, and then Superman rips off the top of the Batmobile and tells Batman that the next time they shine his light in the sky, that he's not to go to it. He says, the bat is dead. Then, we get one of the coolest lines of the movie as Superman is flying away. Batman says, tell me. Do you bleed? You will. Not a very good line reading, I apologize, but it's the best I can do. I'm, I don't have that deep of a voice. So the sequence of the Batmobile going back to the Batcave is all CGI, and it really shows. And that's really too bad, because it could look cool if it actually seemed real. But it just all looks so fucking fake and cartoonish to me, like a shot from a prior-gen video game. Finch is pleading with Superman to come to the hearing and talk about what he's been doing. Clark goes and talks to his mother, played by Diane Lane, whose last name is Kent, but it's also very important to note that her first name happens to be Martha. Lois finds out that her bullet is connected to LexCorp, which is Lex Luthor's company, and all that nonsense with this bullet comes to the most obvious endpoint possible here. Lex shows up to the hearing and wants to ruin Finch's day by telling everyone that she denied him kryptonite. So Superman shows up at the hearing, and Lex basically isn't going to be given his chance to talk, but he sent his hot assistant Mercy Graves into the hearing for some reason. Apparently Mercy Graves is actually a total badass in the Superman stories as Lex's personal assistant and bodyguard, and that's just an opportunity wasted here. I think that that could have been really cool if she would have actually had some fucking toughness and kick some ass here. God, Henry Cavill is such a fucking beefed-up hunk walking into this hearing. Mercy herself is wondering where the fuck Lex is, and it seems like she would know if anyone other than Lex knew his whereabouts. Finch looks down to see what appears to be a jar full of piss on her desk with the label Granny's Peach Tea on it, because we were desperately waiting for that to come back in a big way. It's one of the many Chekhov's guns in this movie. For those that aren't familiar, Chekhov's gun is a storytelling principle that suggests every element in a story should have a purpose and serve the narrative in some way. For instance, if you point out that there's a gun on the mantle in the first act, it should probably fire in the third act, or in other words, it should serve some purpose in the story. Finch gets flustered and senses that something's wrong, and she knows Lex did something since he's not there, and we know he's not there because he's not sitting in his very nicely labeled high back chair that obstructs the view of everyone behind him. Considering he doesn't have any real stake in this, why does he get a fancy chair? 
Then the super surprising bomb in Wally's wheelchair goes off. Who could have seen that coming? I just thought this Wally character was going places. And Superman literally just stands there quite emotionlessly like, what do I do now? Everyone at the hearing other than Superman died in the explosion, obviously. And I would assume that the wheelchair bomb was encased in lead in this moment. At least you'd hope. Superman comes to Lois and tells her he's afraid he didn't see the bomb at the hearing because he wasn't looking for it. But it's like, you can only do so much, man. You had a lot to be thinking about. I wouldn't get down on myself about that. Superman is having doubts about his whole existence as a superhero at this point. Lex goes into the ship and takes the Kryptonian General Zod's body. And long story short, he will be creating a monster inside the Kryptonian ship. But you don't know that yet if it's your first viewing. Little factoid there, Michael Shannon never actually shot any scenes for this film, and the production used a rubber dummy for Zod's corpse. He stated, In the movie, there's a large rubber version of my naked body that Lex Luthor is playing with. I was not. The only thing I did for this was I did some ADR of some lines that Zack Snyder thought that he might use in the movie of my disembodied spirit talking to Lex Luthor. Then we get our other beefed-up hunk, Ben Affleck, doing some old-school workouts while shirtless. He's pounding on a tractor tire with a sledgehammer, and it's pretty badass. I think they chose this because it looks a lot cooler than lifting weights. So Bruce has made some kryptonite weapons that we see seemingly on display. And another note is that I don't really like that there is seemingly no real bat cave. It's just a work area that serves as a bat cave, but it's just an extension of the house. Not really much of a Wayne Manor either. It's on a lake, but it looks like a one-story guest house of Wayne Manor. Then, Bruce goes to his computer, and he opens some files with very generic and shitty logos that are icons for the files. I guess we're to assume that these are what he stole from Lex's computer, but why did Lex have them, and where did he get them? Of all the details that they force into this movie... I would have loved to have seen that or gotten a little glimpse of what he was up to. He looks at these images and brief videos of Diana Prince, who is actually Wonder Woman, despite movies in this universe generally not calling her that within the movies for whatever reason. Lex ignores the ship computer's warnings about creating a monster and has it proceed with making the abomination. The thing I feel like with these moments in movies with cloning and stuff like that is they ignore so frequently that to create a monster, wouldn't it have to have a normal lifespan and life cycle? Wouldn't it have to grow from a molecular level to then develop through the stages of youth and into adulthood over long periods of time? But I guess that doesn't really matter. That happens in a lot of fucking movies, so no big deal. So people are calling for Superman's death on the news, and I'm sure that'll cheer him up. Clark goes out walking in snow-covered mountains and sees a vision of his late Earth father, Jonathan Kent, as played by Kevin Costner. His dad tells him a story about saving his family's farm from a flood and finding out the water he diverted destroyed another family's farm unintentionally. He says that he was at home celebrating while the other family's animals were drowning. And what's the moral of the story? To think about the secondary effects of your actions, I guess? Let's go with that. Bruce and Alfred talk about what he plans to do and how Alfred doesn't think he can win this fight with Superman. We see Martha Kent get kidnapped by mysterious men, and then we're going to get the ultimate showdown that there is so much hype behind 
that there is just no way that it could be disappointing at all. Lois gets apprehended by Sunglasses Man, who was posing as a janitor, buffing the floor for some reason, and she's taken to Lex. The guy didn't really even have to be pretending. It would have been actually scarier if he would have just walked up and taken her. 90% of what Lex says in this movie feels like it's fucking pure gibberish, and he's always just rambling away. Like, Jesse Eisenberg is trying so hard to be eccentric that it comes off as stupid and not believable as an actual personality. Lex pushes Lois off the top of the building they're on, and obviously Superman saves her in the nick of time. So, kidnapping Lois was basically just a ploy to get Superman's attention. Lex reveals that he somehow figured out that Superman is in fact Clark Kent, and again, of all of the things in this movie that we've had to painstakingly watch, we don't get to see that revelation at all. I just don't know how he managed to realize it, though. It was such a great disguise, but I'll never get answers on that, I guess. Lex wants Superman to fight Batman because he has Superman's mother as leverage. Of course, Lex says, Martha, 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 and then continuously says her name, specifically while talking about her, because... That just has to be significant in a short while. We're not going to get around it. So Superman has to kill Batman or Lex will kill his mother. At this point, when I first saw this movie, I remember thinking it was still very good and that perspective would actually continue for quite a while into the movie. But what's the motivation behind Lex tasking Superman with killing Batman? What will he get out of it if he succeeds? I mean, is he just trying to kill Batman because of him trying to get the kryptonite. I don't know. I don't honestly know if he's aware of that even. So Diana sees something spooky going on with the power, and they're reporting about it on the news, and it's all evidently related to Lex's monster being created. Diana looks at the files Bruce sent her, and the images and videos of her are there, but there are some others, and she clicks on some of the other ones with the shitty generic logos, in the Lightning Bolt one, she sees a video of the Flash preventing a convenience store robbery with his super speed. We get the most uneventful shot of Aquaman holding a trident underwater where he attacks the camera and we don't really see much of what he can do at all. Then we get Cyborg who is being created in a lab by his father and essentially we just see him come to be but not really what he can do at all. So I would say The Flash had the only worthwhile video, and he's of course one of the last ones to get a solo movie, and Ezra Miller's behavior has been shrouded in controversy, of course. Batman is in this fucking sweet armored suit waiting for Superman, and it's also thunderstorming, which is a nice touch. So Superman comes and immediately falls into a few traps Batman set up. One trap is like this high-pitched noise thing, and I don't remember that being a thing with Superman, that he can't handle those noises, other than, the only thing I can think is from the 1978 Superman movie, where Lex uses a special frequency to talk to him directly, but that's not really the same thing. We see a lot of Batfleck teeth in this sequence, and I feel like it's just a little weird. I don't like it. Superman has barely been slowed down by these traps, and he fucking throws Batman all over the place for a bit. Batman shoots a kryptonite gas pellet at Superman, and he definitely goes down for the count. Fun fact, for his fight with Superman, Bruce Wayne prepares smoke grenades with the letters PB on them, as in the elemental symbol for lead, the only thing that Superman can't see through. And then we get another great Batman line when he explodes the kryptonite gas in Superman's face. He says, breathe it in. 
That's fear. You're not brave. Men are brave. Batman is fucking stopping the weakened Superman's punches now and kicking the ever-loving shit out of him. But Superman is totally regaining his strength and throws Batman through a wall, of course, because throwing people through walls is the Henry Cavill Superman's signature move. So Batman is getting his ass kicked again and he shoots Superman with another cloud of kryptonite gas. Batman smashes a bathroom sink over Superman's head and takes him and throws him over a railing down several stories. Then he drags Superman for a while and talks a bit. Batman says, I bet your parents taught you that you mean something, that you're here for a reason. My parents taught me a different lesson, dying in the gutter for no reason at all. They taught me the world only makes sense if you force it to. That is a reworking of a quote from The Dark Knight Returns. I like the original better, but they did an okay job on it here since the original quote wouldn't really fit in the context of this movie. But in The Dark Knight Returns, the vibe is that Batman is sick and tired of dealing with Superman's shit after however many years. But back to the matter at hand, Batman is about to kill Superman with a kryptonite spear after swinging him around a bit. But as he goes to do it, the strangest thing happens. For some reason, Superman says, You're letting them kill Martha. And I don't know if I'm to believe that Batman doesn't know who Superman really is or what, but who refers to their mother by her first name in this situation? And wouldn't you believe it, Batman gets stuck on that sentence, specifically the name Martha. Superman keeps crying out, Save Martha! As Batman's foot is on his throat, Batman has a flashback and we are reminded that his mother was also named Martha. Batman asks angrily several times why Superman said that name, and Lois comes and reveals that Martha is actually Superman's mother's name, because for this whole Martha thing to work, Superman has to say her real name, and the payoff on that is just not fucking there. And I guess I'm to believe that if either of their mothers had been named something different, Batman would have just murdered him right there? Is that a fair assumption? So, I have a simple pitch for what they could have done instead of what they did in this moment. Superman could say, Bruce... Please help me. I have to save my mother. She's been kidnapped by Lex Luthor. Then Batman judgingly and angrily would ask, Your mother? You're an alien. Your mother died with your home planet. Then Superman could say, No, my Earth mother. The one who adopted me and helped raise me on Earth. Then Batman can just be floored that this supposedly dangerous alien is not so different from him and that he was raised as a human. I don't know. I haven't fleshed out the whole rewrite, and I obviously it wouldn't have to be exactly like that, but just something in the same vein of that I think would have been way better. Maybe not even great, but like better than what we got. Anyway, they know they must go save Martha, and Batman says he's got to be the one that goes to save her because I guess if they see Superman, they'll just kill her, even though Superman could get her so fast that they couldn't even stop him if they tried. So we see Martha being taunted by sunglasses guy, and he hasn't been wearing sunglasses in any of the last few times we've seen him, but I refuse to learn his character name, and I named him sunglasses guy. Martha is being held at this warehouse, and Batman drops himself off on the floor below where all the hostile bad guys are, and I've gotta say, this is definitely the best and most well-orchestrated scene of the movie by far. I could watch 152 minutes of just this scene unfolding continuously 
for two and a half hours, it would be fucking amazing. Batman breaks in and fucking lays siege to this huge team of bad guys by himself. He creates an explosion in the floor and flies up through the hole that it left to start. And then he does so much shit that I couldn't possibly capture it all as it was happening because I can't type fast enough. He catches some people and pulls them around with a bat rope. He sets off all these charges to take some of the guys down. He grabs a bad guy and uses his gun to kill a bunch of them because this Batman clearly kills. He throws a guy and his head smashes against a wall and in this version we see nothing but in the extended cut there's blood everywhere where the guy's head hit the wall. Of course there's a bunch of close quarters hand-to-hand combat. He stabs a guy toward the end of it and this is all among other things of course. I can only type so fast. You get the picture though. He then smashes through a wall into the room where Martha is and has a standoff with Sunglasses Guy. Then he shoots a gas tank and just barely protects Martha from the explosion in time. And Batman tells Martha that it's okay and that he's a friend of her son's. And she says she figured with the cape and all that. And then Martha and Batman bang it out in a 20 minute long sex scene because it's important to note that Batman is significantly older than Clark in this movie. Just kidding, they don't really bang it out, but they absolutely should have. Diane Lane is made up to look a lot older in this movie, but in present day, real life, she's still a stone-cold fox. I don't care what anybody says. So we see how Lois goes and throws away the kryptonite spear in the water at the building where Batman and Superman were fighting, and there's just no way that she could possibly end up regretting that later on. Superman finds Lex, who is bringing his monster to life, The monster is named Doomsday, and he looks kind of like the Abomination from the Incredible Hulk, but grayer. What isn't clear is how Doomsday doesn't also want to just try killing Lex also. Did Lex do something with that and I just missed it? I mean, it's possible, but I don't think he did. So Doomsday and Superman begin fighting, but Superman appears pretty outmatched. Doomsday seemingly can't really fly, but he can jump super far. Fun fact I just remembered... Originally, Superman could only jump really far, but animators came up with the idea of making him fly because it was easier than animating a bunch of jumps when they were making the original Fleischer cartoons from the 1940s. The news specifically points out that this creature is on the loose, and luckily the area where it is just happens to be empty because the workday is over, because they really want to hammer home that this movie is not as reckless and careless as Man of Steel, So Superman tries to fly Doomsday into space and the government wants to just nuke them, which is not a totally bad idea as an initial thought, but our military friend who helped Lois with her bullet points out that the nuke would kill Superman. But they fire on them anyway, and of course there's an explosion and everyone fears for the worst, and it turns out the bomb just kind of amplified Doomsday's power, and you know you just hate when that happens. The military determines that Doomsday is unkillable, and Batman realizes that he has to draw the beast back to Gotham because it can only be harmed by kryptonite weapons, since it's got Kryptonian DNA like Superman. So I guess Lois throwing that spear away earlier almost seems like it was a bad idea. Superman is floating out in space, and the sun hits him, and he comes back to life, and it's pretty sweet. His eyes light up all red when he opens them. Very cool moment if I'm being completely honest about it. Batman crash lands and he's a sitting duck as Doomsday goes to use his heat vision to kill Batman. Also, when Batman and Superman were fighting, why didn't Superman use heat vision at all? 
Suddenly, something blocked Doomsday's attack on Batman, and it's none other than Wonder Woman. I fucking love it. That moment is also pretty fucking spectacular, just the way it all plays out, because you're just like, oh shit, this could be the end for Batman. I gotta say, I absolutely love the Wonder Woman theme that they play. That might not be a popular opinion, but I really think it's fucking great, honestly. So Wonder Woman launches a little attack, and then Superman swoops in and distracts him. The three heroes regroup and try and figure out a plan, and Wonder Woman says she's killed things from other worlds before. Superman asks Batman, is she with you? And Batman says, I thought she was with you. But Batman has absolutely no reason to believe that at all. It's like, it's a funny little moment, but it doesn't really make any sense in context. Like, Superman has had no interactions with Wonder Woman before this, And all of a sudden, it's like Batman is just forgetting that he's been the one that's talked to her. Doomsday unleashes a huge attack, destroying several nearby buildings. And Lois is trying to get the spear, but it's too far underwater. And Lois appears to be trapped underwater. And that seems less than ideal since she kind of requires air to breathe. But Superman saves her, and I promise she's not gonna die. Don't worry about it, guys. I know you were just, your heart was racing. It was just, you were like, oh god. But Batman is doing his best against Doomsday, but he's mostly playing defense without superpowers. I don't fully understand the scope of Wonder Woman's powers. I think maybe they've been unevenly portrayed in the different iterations of her character. I know the Reeve movies invented a lot of bullshit powers for Superman. Like, there's one moment in either Superman 3 or 4 where he telekinetically reassembles the bricks on the Great Wall of China or some shit, and I'm like, Yeah, he can't actually do that, though. That's not a thing. Oh, also, in the theatrical cut of Superman 2, he can teleport on his own and duplicate himself with no special devices other than his mind. And let me tell you, that's not a Superman ability at all. It only exists inside that movie. But with Wonder Woman, she's very strong. She can fly in some iterations. She has wristbands that deflect bullets or create a wave of energy when they're put together. But I feel like I've got to be missing some stuff. I mean, she has the lasso of truth and all that stuff, but that's, I don't know if I'd lump that in with superpowers. How is it that Superman was so weak around this fucking spear 30 seconds ago after very minimal exposure to the point that he couldn't do anything? And now I'm supposed to believe that he can fly a great distance holding onto that spear so he can stab Doomsday with it. Okay. Like, how can he even make it that far without falling apart while holding the spear? Sheer willpower cannot be enough. But ultimately, he kills Doomsday with the spear, and Superman subsequently dies as a result. I gotta say something. I don't think that the death of Superman comics were particularly great. It was a very one-dimensional story in my mind, and we mostly only got the B-Squad of DC superheroes coming to help. Now, I've said that before, and people frequently argue that millions of people would disagree because those comics were very popular, but I've talked about this before. I don't care how many copies were sold of anything. Buying copies, even someone buying every issue in that arc, does not necessarily mean that those people thought it was good. They had to buy it to find out one way or the other for the most part, and buying the copies does not confirm that they thought it was good. It's like movie tickets, album sales, or anything else like that. I've talked about it before. Anyway, Superman is dead and Lois is bummed. Lex is going to prison. We get the shot of the coincidental obituary for Clark Kent in the Daily Planet. 
that also references the death of Superman on the front page, and no one recognizes what that might mean. I'm guessing they just said that Clark Kent died in the attacks, Doomsday causing all this chaos, like, you know, he probably died in that is what they're saying, but they don't actually spell that out. Martha gives Lois a gift Clark has sent to her house to surprise her, and it's an engagement ring, of course. So there's a huge military Superman funeral complete with Amazing Grace on bagpipes. That footage is interspersed with Clark's funeral in Kansas. Diana and Bruce are there in Kansas, and Lois is too, obviously. So Bruce and Diana basically just talk about needing to form the Justice League to do better at protecting the world now that Superman is gone, because... DC was and still is desperate to catch up to Marvel. We see a bit of Lex's life in prison and the lights go out and suddenly Batman is there and he's going to brand Lex. Lex simply points out that you can't unring the bell and Superman is already dead. So Lois is still at the open grave throwing dirt on the coffin and we look down to the coffin and see some of the dirt rising up. I get what that's supposed to mean, but it honestly makes no sense to me at all. Like, I guess it's suggesting that Superman is not actually dead, but why would that make the dirt do that? Also, he is actually completely dead, too, and they have to bring him back to life in a later movie. So, yeah, what is that all about? I don't know. Roll credits. Okay, so praise for this movie. The visuals and cinematography are top-notch, The performance by Ben Affleck shows why so many fans clamored to have him back as Batman time and time again. There are so many great scenes and ideas set up in this movie. The warehouse scene with Batman honestly just kicks so fucking much ass, I just love it. For criticism, the story is bogged down with too many plot threads that oftentimes could have easily been written out of the film. Jesse Eisenberg's portrayal of Lex Luthor is by far the worst I've ever seen, and it's a total waste. I would have loved to see a lot more of a direct adaptation of The Dark Knight Returns, but it's never going to happen because it would require you knowing a whole lot of backstory. There'd be a lot of setup for it, so I'm just going to give up on that pipe dream right now. So, little trivia. In this film, Batman wears a voice modulator in his suit to electronically alter his voice. After the casting of Ben Affleck in the role, this was an idea that had been suggested by his friend, director Kevin Smith, as he felt Affleck's natural speaking voice was too high-pitched for Batman. He also felt it wouldn't sound as ridiculous as Christian Bale's voice in the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy. Ben Affleck gained an additional 20 pounds of muscle and reached 8% body fat for his role as Bruce Wayne slash Batman. Superman had only 42 lines of dialogue throughout this entire movie. Stephen Amell, who plays Oliver Queen, a.k.a. Green Arrow, in the television series Arrow, reportedly wanted to be in this film. Promotional material revealed that Oliver Queen does exist in the DC Extended Universe. In Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns novel, Arrow assisted Batman in the fight against Superman. Gal Gadot has 16 lines in this film, and she's given like one or two more in the extended cut. Ben Affleck auditioned for the role of Dick Grayson slash Robin in Batman from 1989 before the character was cut from the script. Diana Prince, aka Wonder Woman, is never addressed by either name on screen in either the extended cut or the theatrical release. 
she is only referred to as Miss Prince by an air stewardess. Most characters in the movie Wonder Woman from 2017 address her as Diana. Colonel Darnell in that film addresses her as Miss Prince. The first cut of this film had a runtime of four hours. Bill Finger co-created Batman. He originally named The Batman, who first appeared in Detective Comics number 27 from May of 1939. However, Bob Kane didn't publicly acknowledge Bill Finger's contributions until years after Finger's death. As such, this film is the first theatrical feature film to officially credit Finger as co-creator of Batman. This movie had the biggest opening weekend gross of any DC Comics film ever, but it also had the biggest second weekend drop of any DC Comics film as well. A large portion of this film was shot in Detroit, and it is said that around $199 million of the budget was spent in the state of Michigan. An estimated $165 million was spent on marketing for this film, and that is usually not factored into the principal budget. So a couple of IMDB nuggets, because people just are starved for posting something to the IMDB trivia section, whether it's the most obvious thing or not. So the first one is, the film's subtitle is a reference to the Justice League. Yes, I think we all fucking realize that. While Bruce is talking to Clark during Lex Luthor's party, Bruce says that Gotham already has enough trouble with villains that like to dress up as clowns. This is a reference to the Joker. Uh-huh. Yep. That, that's true. Okay, so info and ratings. We have a runtime of 152 minutes, a budget of $250 million, opening weekend $166 million, worldwide gross $873.6 million, IMDb rating 6.4, Rotten Tomato critic score 29%, Rotten Tomato audience score 63%, personal rating 3.5 out of 5 stars this one's got a lot of problems i want to like it but i can't like it as much as i want to so that's all i've got for today i hope that uh, you enjoyed the episode and that perhaps you'll uh, listen to the other dc episodes in this series i'm trying to release them every other week and i'm just struggling to wait that long to let them be released but what can you do so All right, everyone. Well, obviously, let me know if you have any requests or suggestions. I'd be happy to try and entertain some things. Have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.